Thank you for this insightful book, Excellent Sheep, which has been provocative in higher education circles and I think among students and families. It's a terrific contribution to the literature, and I'm grateful for it. I think the nation should be grateful to you for it. I'll have a series of questions okay. about it, uh, so. and I'll start with maybe the more difficult one. Um, it appears you didn't receive tenure at Yale. Right. Uh, you had a great run. You did wonderful work. You didn't acknowledge that in the book. I'm wondering why not. Well, I think that that's a question that's come more often from fellow academics who wonder whether this book is the product of sour grapes. I think specifically it comes from uh, from people in the Ivy League. I didn't want to make my story part of it uh, any more than I needed to. The book is really for general readers, for students, for their families. Um, perhaps in retrospect, it would have been a good idea just to get that out of the way. And I'm glad that you asked me so I can get it out of the way. No one of any sense who's a junior faculty member at a place like Yale <laughs> expects to get tenure at a place like Yale. I didn't, I'm not angry at Yale for not giving me right. tenure. I left academia because I wasn't able to get a job somewhere else. And the main reason for that is that jobs in academia are drying up because increasingly schools are hiring adjuncts rather than professors. So it's really a larger problem that's part of the things that I talk about in the book. Absolutely sure, and I'm sympathetic to that. I, yeah. just, I just wanted to clarify. No, I'm glad, I'm glad we I were able to clarify. I certainly it. understand that, uh, that yeah. that's a circumstance for many, many professors. Yeah. Um, Interestingly, you know, I'm at Georgetown, so it's a Jesuit and Catholic university, and I had a particular interest in that domain. And you, you only mentioned one Catholic university in this book, Catholic University of Chile, actually. So I was wondering if you think that none of the Catholic universities in the country either are elite, or you don't know that domain, or we don't have the same kind of student bodies that Yale or the Ivy Leagues have. No, it's not that. I mean, I do mention uh, a fair number of schools in the course of really talking about what students have written to me and what fellow professors have told me about things at their school. But it's to a certain extent, it's a bit arbitrary who I mention and who I don't. Uh, it's not that I think the elite Catholic universities, of which Georgetown, Notre Dame, B.C., clearly are among, uh, it's not that I think things are radically different there because it's all one system. And the main aspect of the system is the kinds of students that are being produced before they even get to college. It's really Mm -hmm. about the admissions process. Now, as you know, I have sort of a half a paragraph in the book Mm -hmm. where I say that I think that in some ways religious colleges, and that would include the prestigious Catholic universities, do things better because they're still paying attention to the higher purposes of a higher education. I should say that that line about religious schools seems to be one of the ones that is most annoyed Ivy League professors. Not, not most readers, but people like Steven Pinker who are just, uh, incensed at the idea that, that the word religious and the word good could be in the same sentence. So. Well, I would, I would tend to think that religious schools and Catholic and Jesuit schools do have a value added in what they do. And I, I think at our place that there are, we are trying, I'm trying to shape students for life. And, and I tell parents, for example, you've given us a gem, as any of these elite schools have, and we polish it and give it back to you with a, with a conscience, the responsibility to give back and the ability to lead. And that's what we do. And what I want your students to be, your sons or daughters, are better versions of themselves when they leave here. Oh, they'll also be smart. They were smart when they came in and they'll have a Georgetown degree or they'll have a Yale degree or they'll have a Harvard degree. Of course, that's a given for these students. 
it's 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 what happens at the margins and what happens really at the center of themselves is right. the more important right. than simply the credentialing. I think the credentialing will happen, and I think right. they've all earned that. Right. So that's really not what I'm interested in. But right. Yeah, I realize families are interested in this, and students are interested in credentialing as well. But we have to open their imaginations to something beyond that. Listen, I think the most disheartening thing for me about the reaction to the book is that I've said, as you can, as simple paraphrase, I've said. Many of our most elite schools are not giving students what I would call a real education, which is what you just described. Mm -hmm. And the response has often been from within those institutions or people who recently graduated, not, yes, we do give a real education, but who wants a real education these days? Don't be a sucker. This is about job. This is about career. This is about return on investment. And the kinds of things you just talked about, that it's about life and not just about your job. Uh, this is an increasingly difficult argument to make, and it's one of the main reasons I wrote the book, to try to push back against this intensely pragmatic, and I would say self-defeatingly pragmatic, idea of education in general and higher education in particular. Yes, I think, for example, liberal arts schools um, are designed, professional schools are designed to teach you how to make a living. Yeah. Liberal arts schools to teach you, teach you uh, how to live a life and why life is worth living, the larger questions. And I think... I can give you an anecdote, a story of a student of ours who was an art history major and was presented before one of the boards at Georgetown of alumni and parents and so forth and was being pressed by one of the board members. Why would you do, what are you going to do with that? What are you going to do with an art history? What are you going to do? And she expressed how it's enriched her life completely. It will probably stay with her for her life. She has an aesthetic sense. It was very eloquent, yeah. very eloquent. And he pressed again, but what are you going to do with it? And she said, well, if I have to, for a profession, I'll fall back on my second major, which is neuroscience. <laughs> and, and that's often the kind of students, I'm sure you saw, but certainly that we see. And my own view is that, I, I agree with you completely, you should pursue your passion in college. Right. Many people don't do it, I, but I think you should pursue your passion. But I'm a pragmatist, too. So, for example, you can be a history major or an English major, but also I put in a minor in business for college students. A minor. So that you can know how to read a spreadsheet and do, because no matter what you're doing, even what I do, I'm a dean, I'm doing management and I'm right. seeing budgets. Right. I'm an academic right. by training. So I haven't given up that core of who I am, but having other requisite skills is helpful. But it's not something I think that, that the liberal arts student should pursue a full time in undergraduate experience. Right. I want to be clear, and I hope I'm clear about this in the book. I'm a pragmatist too. I mm -hmm. do not want students to think that the world is going to hand them a living because it owes them a living. But there's a difference between compromise and capitulation, right? Mm -hmm. Figure out what you want to do. Figure out what you care about the most. And then figure out, hopefully with the help of college, how you're going to translate that into a career that can sustain you. But it's also, I mean, it's also important for students to know that it's not just about the first job. And if you look at people who've been successful, especially people who've been successful and done interesting things, it's almost never a linear path. And that's why I say, even in narrowly practical terms, this pragmatic approach is self-defeating because you want to prepare people to be able to navigate a career, which means having all these kinds of intangible or soft skills that you don't get from a technical education or from a business minor. You get from learning how to be the kind of person and be the kind of thinker that a real liberal arts education gives you. Someone I heard recently described a liberal arts education as intellectual cross-training. That's a good term. Right, because it's not about majoring in English per se or art right. history or whatever. It's about 
And only America does this, right? Only we allow students to take classes, insist that students take classes across the curriculum. So they're learning different ways to think, and therefore they're better at each of those ways because they've learned all of the others. I, I, I agree. I think it contributes to a certain agility, mental agility, and flexibility. And, and I distinguish between a job and a career. And a career will last – actually, you'll have more than one career. Most people right. will have more than one career. You may right. be in multiple careers over your right. lives. You'll certainly have multiple jobs. And if the – if the um, the measurement is exclusively your first job and and the salary attached to it, it's probably not an accurate measurement of where you're going to go in your life. If you measure liberal arts people ten years out and fifteen years right. out, they seem, they seem to do equally well with people who are trained in other skills. Yes. Usually, on the financial. Measure. I believe there's a study that yeah. says that. Yeah, right. that the gap exactly. closes in about does, ten years. It, it does close. Right. So I so I think and. For me, these are four years where you can explore a range of issues that I think, in my own view, have intrinsic value, uh, not simply pragmatic value, but intrinsic yes. value. Yes. And that will, that will, that will uh, inform you and shape you as who you are. So I, I, we, we couldn't agree more on that. One thing we try to do, you also talk in the book about how, um, practical and driven for credentialing students are and, um, not reflective often. And I think that's true. I think they, they get in, they, they're, they're on yes. a treadmill to just get to the next yes. thing and fill the resume out. We, we try to have them, have, we could, the judges call it contemplation and action that you step back and we, we have a retreat center in Virginia away from the campus where we take them. And the retreat center doesn't mean a religious retreat. There are religious retreats available, but one is called escape. It's simply getting away for a weekend and reflecting on what are you doing here? Why are you in college? What does it mean? Independent of the pressures from your peers right there, you'll have a small peer group with you and, and someone to guide the conversations, but also away from your family and away from what you've, why those, those weekends are transformative for many students. They kind of figure it out. I think, oh, this is, this is, this, I need to do this more often. I need to reflect. I believe that they're transformative. I think it's great that you guys are doing it. I do wish that I had mentioned that in the book, that I had known about it and could have talked about it. Because, listen, I mean, what I do say is I don't have a lot of practical suggestions to make because I don't know you as an individual. Right, and of course. But the one thing that I say is you need to step away, whether that means a gap year before college. I saw that. Or whatever it is, it's it's precisely the act of getting away from the peer pressure, the parental pressure, the the incessant busyness that comes with the, the drive to credential, to credentialism, the hoop jumping, right? Mm -hmm. Now, college in general sh used to be, should be, is supposed to be that in itself, right? College in general is supposed to be the four year timeout. Right. But it's been so pervaded by these, uh, by these pragmatic pressures, by these, this, this credentials arms race. Mm -hmm. Um, it's, I, I, insofar as I blame the colleges for that, it again goes back to the admissions process. And how it creates a childhood and adolescence that's all about jumping through the next hoop. And then secondarily that I think unlike what you just described at Georgetown, many colleges and I think many especially elite colleges don't do anything to disrupt the momentum of the hoop jumping. I think that they think that because our kids are so smart, and of course they must be smart because their SAT scores are high, they must be smart because we let them in, then we don't need to do any of that work of getting them to be reflective about what their education is really for. They take it for granted. I think that's a huge mistake. Yeah, I, I agree. I think it's a huge, yeah. I think, I think we, that's value added. We have to do that. Yeah. We have to force them into that kind of a thought process, that kind of reflection, that kind of conversation with others about 
What is the meaning of all this? I think it's the foundational question you have to do. And we have to come back to it again and again. It's not always easy. And you're fighting against certain pragmatism. And they're also diffused in all their interests. They're doing many, many things, yeah. as you know. They're, they're doing yeah. internships and they're, they're, uh, yes. they're volunteering and they're taking five courses and they're in three groups and they head two of those groups. And this right. is, this is, uh, typical of it. What would you say for the strategy when you're talking with families and all? Uh, and it's easier to do it at our place than it might be at Yale or other places. I'm not sure of the double major. So, for example, I often advise students: listen, pursue your passion in college. I mean, you said it in the book yourself: pursuing your passion. People don't do it as much anymore. I still think you should because there are four very privileged years you can never get back, right? And you'll never have a chance to do this kind of reflection right. again, and the kind of reading and and uh, and writing that you'll do in college. But pursue your passion in one major and do. Do mom and dad's major, if you want, for the second major or the one that's going to set you up for a professional career. I'm fine with that. I'm fine yeah. being an English major and a biology major. You really yeah. want to be a doctor, but you want to be kind of well-rounded, well-read, thoughtful. Right. What do you think of that? Well, I'm not against it. I know it's become very common. The kids will say one for me, one for my parents. Right. I'm a little skeptical about it. Um, it again, it can be the right choice, but I think it it misunderstands the role that this passion or interest is supposed to have. Uh, I don't think it's something that you should just do on the side because it's a neat thing when you're 20 years old, but you're, you're going to, you know, it should be the foundation of what you do in life. Again, compromises will have to be made. I've made compromises. I'm sure you've made compromises. The world will demand that of you. Mm -hmm. But I think we need to start from a place of, I actually try to get away from the word passion because it's partly become such a cliche and students feel like, oh, I don't know what that feels like. I prefer the word purpose mm -hmm. because that unites the inner with the outer. What, 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 what do you care about and what do you see out there in the world that needs your attention? To the extent that it's possible, and this will differ for different kids, different circumstances, that is what should motivate what you study in college and what you do afterwards. So I'm not, I don't like this bifurcation, right? I mean, that's exactly where we start to get into trouble, where we think that life is over here and work is over there. The idea is to find the kind of work, if you can, that's going to, that's going to reflect what you care about most deeply. And listen, there are also surveys, and I think common sense tells us that that's go also going to lead to the most successful, mm -hmm. even in vocational terms, kind of existence. You know, if you want to get out of bed and do what you're doing and, and, it, and it's meaningful to you. Uh, the psychologist will also tell us that the two main uh, constituents of happiness are connectedness to others, and a, a sense of purpose, which, mm -hmm. which for us in the 21st century generally means purpose through work. Right. This, this is true. Right. Something that's pur purposeful and meaningful work. Yeah. And that has, is re the remuneration is good or maybe excellent, but sure. you have to be doing something that's worthwhile. Uh, yes. Doing good while doing well in a sense. Yes. Uh, we would hope. Um, shifting a little bit, and there's so many ideas in the book. I have, uh, my head is filled with things I want to ask <laughs> you. And one is the grade inflation issue at, yeah. at, at, I think at all schools across the, the board, but not necessarily every school. I think certainly the elite schools clearly right. heavy, heavy grade inflation. Yes. Uh, at our own place, the students are even complaining about it. Ironically. Really? Yes, they are. They're saying, oh, wow. we want a clearer differentiation between who is really outstanding and who is good. And we're not really getting that from our grades. Uh, the grades are very high for everybody. And so how do we, how do I know if I really am outstanding that I'm outstanding? I mean, how, how do I know I'm meritorious more than the next person or I stand out in any way if we're all teeth on a comb uh, on the GPA scale? 
It's interesting they've said that. Now, as a consequence, when they say that, if their GPA goes down, they'll be the first ones to complain and say, right. we didn't mean that. We right. didn't mean it would affect me. But it's an interesting argument because increasingly a, a large number of students are gaining Latin honors at, at all the elite schools. Right. Very, high, very high percentage yeah. of them. Right. Many of them who merit. They come in highly qualified. It's not unusual. But we're thinking about restraining that a little yeah. bit. And yeah. students are actually saying... Some are saying that's a good idea. Others are saying, oh, I might be left out, and therefore I won't be competitive for graduate school or or a profession. Your take? Well, I, first of all, that's such an interesting thing. <laughs> un- you know, unusual. Because, because as you know, um, uh, Princeton uh, went back. Tried this. They tried this, and, and despite the fact that apparently there was no evidence that it was disadvantaging their students after graduation, the students were so freaked out by the possibility that it was that they insisted right. that they go back to the old inflated grade of – you know, the average GPA, like, north of 3.5. Right. Uh, what's especially interesting to me about what you said about your students is that it it, it resonates with, with the sense that I had as a professor and have had uh, speaking to students since then, that they they want honesty. They know that the system, they've become so cynical about their education because it's always been so much like a video game, like, just get to the next level. And because they know, listen, one of the things that's driving great inflation is precisely this, uh, this ridiculous busyness, this extra, the way extracurriculars expand to fill all the available space, whether in college or in high school. How do students deal with that? How do you deal with the fact that you're doing 10 different things, sport, musical instrument, whatever, and you still have to carry a course load? You put more and more pressure on your teachers in high school or your professors in college to inflate grades. Mm-hmm. But this... But this is part of what contributes to the cynicism and the sense that students get that they're not getting real feedback and they don't really know where they stand. Right. And I found students often to be surprisingly grateful for honest feedback, which I tried to give them. You know? Which I think is good and honest, great, hard grades. I think the best right. professors are very good pedagogues. They're very right. good. They're inspiring teachers and all, but they're also demanding. And I found the students who find that they got the B from this person, the only B they got, they think it was the best course they had. Yes. Whereas yes. the easy A, so to speak, is it's okay. But you it's hear not that really, a lot. You hear that from yeah. people who've been out of school for ten years. That's right. the professor they remember. These are the ones that are most. But again, it's an exception. And as you say, sure. great, great inflation is an increasing problem, and it speaks to the fact that um, learning is not at the top of the agenda in college anymore. Yeah, that's. The- can be a problem. It true. can be a problem. I mean, yeah. you know, people also talk about the mutual non-aggression pact between students and professors, right? Right. right. They There's pretend a certain to learn collusion and... among the professors sometimes. Well, because yeah. professors are incentivized not to teach but to do research, so it's easy. It's it's much. It takes much less time to give someone an A than it does to give them a B. Because if it's a B, you have to explain it to them, and exactly. then you have to help them get better. That's right, and that's the the key part. And I think that's the important part: is helping yeah. them get better. I mean. For example, the whole notion of a rewrite, which many yeah. people is a good idea, I think. Absolutely. Because that's how you learn. Absolutely. You say, okay, here's your mistakes. Yes. Let's try this again. Yeah. And, but it's a, it's, it's, it, it takes a lot it of It takes time. a lot of work. It takes, right. it takes an investment in the right. students and saying, if that's your primary mission, you're really there to enhance student learning. Yeah. Yes. But if usually most places have a dual mission of, of course, enhancing student learning, but also producing first rate scholarship, it's a challenge. Look, look, this has been a contradiction in American higher ed for a very long time. Uh, there are forces, we could talk about them, academic job market forces that, it, that are making it worse and worse. Uh, and as students shift their attention away from their curriculars to their extracurriculars, 
uh, it becomes more and more of a problem. No one, no one is really, no one's primary interest is what's going on in the classroom. The professors want to be in the library or the lab. The students want to be in their club or their internship. So, uh, we, we need to think about, we yeah. really need to think about this. Yeah, that's probably exactly to say no one. There are still people who care about classroom yeah, right. performance, but right, I, course, I know, but, but the direction is that way. Um, and speaking of that, uh, curricula and all, what do you think of the, um, the, the efforts to, uh, change curricula through technology and MOOCs and, and all that's happening oh, in, the, in that kind of that wide domain? You don't address it too much in the book, but I'm sure you have some opinions. About I have it. a few choice paragraphs about the MOOCs, but I don't, <laughs> I mean, as you pointed out, I, I try to cover a lot of ground because I want to describe what I think is a large system that needs to be, the parts need to be inventoried. But I don't, I can't talk about everything. I don't want to try to talk about everything. Uh, look, as a general rule, surely there are ways that technology can enhance learning. Uh, as another general rule, I think Americans prefer to solve problems with a machine than with a human being. We prefer technology to teachers or psychologists or sometimes even parents. Um, Education is a, is a human relationship. I, it always has been. I really think it always will be. I don't think we will ever be able to teach people as well by turning them loose on a computer program than we will one-on-one in small classrooms with teachers who are, who are rewarded for, for teaching. People think that they can solve the cost problem in college. Governors, politicians think that they can solve this problem with MOOCs, with massive open online courses, with technology, with um, efficiencies of scale. I think it's a huge mistake. And as I'm sure you know, the the completion rates on MOOCs are dismal. They're in the single digits. Even among the people who finish MOOCs, they tend to be older people who already have college degrees. Yes, the vast majority of them have degrees already. They have degrees. because so they, they do it for personal edification rather than well, – it's not the democratization of education uh, this, and, yes. and making it more accessible to – People it's not about the kid access. in Outer Mongolia exactly. who's going to get to MIT. Right. And it's not just that they're doing it for personal enrichment. They've been to college, so they already know how to teach themselves. True. The whole point of college is to learn how to teach yourself. This is very true. But you can't, you know, you can't do it by yourself. No. Um, another, a slight shift again. Um, I, I had a transfer student whom I was talking to at Georgetown, wonderful young woman, and she had come from a school that was, should I say, this sounds arrogant, not elite, but it was certainly, it was a yeah. very ordinary kind of place. Yeah. She was very bright. She had gotten into several very good schools, including Georgetown and Columbia and Chicago, and but didn't have the money. Yeah. And, and we gave only the financial aid we could give, and it wasn't enough. So she went to another school thinking that a good student can get a good education anywhere. Yeah. And she found it not to be true in the particular place she went to. She's right. come to us and it's been a much richer environment, right. uh, both for the pedagogy, but also I think for the, for the peer group that she's with and that they're actually serious about education, that they are ambitious, that they work hard, that they do right. their reading, all, right. all of that. Right. They're right. conscientious. Right. It makes a difference. The environment is if, if you want to be academically inclined, this is okay. This is a culture where well, the other culture great. was, it was not a good thing to be academically inclined. So I'm not sure that it works everywhere. I think, in other words, elite schools do have something to offer to students. Listen, uh, uh, I, I don't disagree with that. I mean, I don't, I'm not gonna romanticize or idealize 
public higher education as it exists now. To me, the ultimate solution is to refund public higher education, to, to make once again the commitment we once made to have high quality, low or no cost higher education, uh, public higher education. Um, but given the state that things have reached at most public universities because of the relentless defunding, yeah, I mean, kids have trouble graduating in four years because they're closed out of classes. Classrooms are giant lecture halls. There's, there's no contact. There aren't even graduate student teaching assistants. Um, the elite private schools are very well resourced institutions and they, mm-hmm. they can offer students the opportunity. Right. I would, I would even say they always offer students the opportunity to get a great education. But at a lot of schools, and it sounds like Georgetown isn't one of them, but certainly a lot of the Ivy League schools are like this. You have to fight to get the kind of education that the school is supposedly set up to give you because your peers, by and large, are not interested in what's going on in the classroom. And your professors, by and large, do not want to take the time. Mm. I mean, people have written about, people at Harvard have written about this. People at UVA have written about this, one of the public Ivies. You have to fight your institution. And I'm simply saying, first of all, that's ridiculous. And second of all, there are schools where that's not the case. I I single out as an institutional model the liberal arts colleges, mm-hmm. colleges that don't have a large university edifice where where the where the where the emphasis is more on on teaching, and they still defend the liberal arts. A lot. There are also now public honors colleges, more and more of them, uh, that try to replicate that model on large uh, public campuses. To me, that's what a college should look like, where a student feels supported by the institution and their peers for once to get a real education, not like a sucker, because you should major in econ and go to Wall Street. Mm-hmm. The, the advantage of potentially, I mean, all the, the small liberal arts colleges that do that, I admire them, they do it well, yeah. and the elite ones get the best students. But the the advantage might be for a student who goes to a research university that has a, co- a liberal arts college yeah. within it, yeah. they get they get both, in a sense. They get access to high quality research and a, and a high power institution in that way. And they hopefully get the personal attention and the, the right. teaching that is, right. is required in a college environment. Right. It's a balance, but there are some places that try to try to do both. Listen, and, and institutions, both differ. Easy. institutions right. differ. I think yeah. of the university of Chicago, which yeah. has this great, great reputation for intense intellectualism. I also think about the fact the university of Chicago seems to be departing from its mission. And I don't know if you want to get into this, but partly be careful, because it's of my alma mater. Well, listen, I mean, you should be concerned about this. And I hear this at other places, too. Brown, which is of the Ivies, the one that's most like a liberal arts college, I hear there. Also, there's an institutional convergence. There's an institutional homogenization, partly driven by U.S. News and various other practical factors or not practical factors, where more and more colleges are looking more and more like each other. Mm-hmm. And and they're converging on that research university model in the in the worst sense, where it's all about research. Humanities gets shrunk, uh, you know, until it's small enough to drown in the bathtub because science is what brings in the money or supposedly brings in the money and so forth. Yeah, they, they do look homogenous. I mean, uh, Chicago, I went for graduate school and it's a, it was at that time two thirds graduate and one third undergraduate. So it's a kind of a high power research institution. I think it sees itself that way. It has put more resources in undergraduate education and probably done a better job in recent years. But I think you, you better be singly focused when you go there, uh, what, what you're going to be doing. And well, that may be true with the other schools, too. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if we want to talk about Chicago right. too much in particular, right. but I, I see it differently. I mean, it, it's always had, I think, a deserved reputation for, for, for a very, again, a very intense intellectual experience, sort of like right. a graduate school for undergraduates. Exactly. You know, that's 
that's what they seem to be moving away from because mm. a lot of kids don't want it and you know they've changed their admissions policies and dropped their acceptance rate very far right. and they're very happy about it but it seems like the ethos that made it its own unique place yeah. uh is, is getting lost. Well, that's something good, saying something that's unique, since there is a lot of homogenization yes. across higher education. To be unique is not easy to do, to be distinctive. I think you can be distinctive still, uh, and some certain places are. Um, but unique is probably not a term that we would use for higher education, because we do look a lot alike, many of us. Uh, it doesn't make sense. I mean, maybe you can explain this better, because you're in the, at the management end, but it would seem to me that you'd want to have a differentiated product. Absolutely. I mean, at Georgetown, I say, because we're Jesuit and Catholic and we're in Washington, D.C., we're not Berkeley, we're not Brown. Those are wonderful institutions. Right. We're happy. Here's who we are. We also right. have a, an embedded value structure that we're very clear about. And it's us, uh, one of the phrases at the school is men and, men and women for others. So we expect you to give back. It's just part of the culture. This is yeah. who you, who you are. Yeah, yeah. This is uh, to give just to the large, to the common good is what we expect of them. When they come in as freshmen, they, when they leave as seniors, they understand what that means. As a consequence, one of our biggest employers is Teach for America. You'll do service for two years, and, the, and some will stay in the education domain, but others will go on to other things. I think it's a good thing. People yeah. are actually doing something worthwhile. Yeah. The post-graduate world, um, would you advise, sometimes, for example, I advise students who want to pursue a passion, particular passion. We have This is happening more and more for a media industry. They want to go to Hollywood. They want to be screenwriters. Right, 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 right. I, I think that's okay. I say go for a couple of years, put parameters around it, and if you're getting coffee for a director eight years later, you've you got to get out of it. But at 22, I think you should experiment. I think you should be I agree. you should be free to do things and not feel constrained that you have to go immediately to get your MBA or, or your JD, uh, right. as, as some students feel. Right. Again, it'll depend on what circumstances dictate, and, and maybe your student debt load will dictate. But... Um, Listen, you're not, you haven't experienced the world yet until you get out of college. So uh, how are you going to figure out what you want to do in the world until you have some exposure to it? I, I agree with that. Um, and especially if we're talking about, you know, a law degree, a business degree, uh, it's, I think, much better done uh, when you're a little bit older. I, I agree. And I think maybe taking a little bit of a risk is a good thing at some point. It's okay. It's okay. I mean, you don't want to take the risk when you're 35 and you have a mortgage and you have a family and you have responsibilities. But when you're 22, you can not you can, just you a can good thing. I think it's an essential thing. Yeah, yeah. And part of the problem is, right? These kids have been taught to be risk averse from the very beginning because they know that they have to get that perfect GPA to get into the name brand college. I mean, risk aversion is one of the things that people who've and I'm not the first person to write about no, all I, of this, I, right? I, I mean, it's one of the main things that people have identified for a long time, and I think it's something that we really need to worry about. Just one quick thought. Uh, we're preparing students for an increasingly unstructured uh, job market economic world with an increasingly structured education, right? So this is not serving them well. Mm -hmm. What about the professoriate? How do you think that's changed in the last 20 or 30 years in oh, our education professoriate? <laughs> I mean, that's a, that's, a, that's a fancy term <laughs> no, no, for no, all no, those no. people who are hired to no, teach no, and to do a research. No, no, it's a great term. It's a great term. It contains its own melancholy. <laughs> Um, I think the most important thing to say about that is that at this point, only 25% of people who teach in college are professors. Are tenured or tenure track. Tenure or tenure track professors. Right. Yeah, the rest are adjuncts, postdocs, graduate students, or a very large class, as you know, of full-time non-tenure non -tenure track. Mm -hmm. This is kind of a shadow 
um, uh, this is a way that schools have gotten around tenure without saying that they're abolishing tenure. Mm-hmm. Listen, a lot of these people are great teachers. I would say, especially the full time, right? You're an adjunct. You're teaching at three or four places. You're getting five thousand right. dollars a course. It doesn't matter how committed you are to teaching. It's going to be very hard for you to be a good teacher. These longer term contract employees are often the best teachers on campus, but they're still not rewarded. I mean, salaries are still low. Mm-hmm. Uh, job security is low. Uh, institutional validation and prestige. I mean, everybody knows that they're second class citizens. I think it's time that we got serious about the idea of a teaching faculty in parallel with a research faculty. Or, I mean, either or, right? You are hired, promoted, and tenured either for your research or your teaching or some combination of the two, not just research as it is now. Mm -hmm. We already have this second faculty, but we need to, uh, we need to give them the, you know, we need to pay them and, and, and respect them, uh, equally to the research, you know, the research stars. I would agree. I think we need to accord them the respect and give them the visibility for their career, give them a commitment from the institution to some degree, and they will be more deeply committed to you, and they often are yeah. deeply committed to you. Uh, the other part, the research, I would I would like to still the research faculty to be active in teaching. I, I think that the, it, they should be doing both. I think if it's strictly a research faculty, you really have a two-tiered structure and a two-tiered university, and, a, yeah. and, and sometimes those who are the research stars are they never see a majority of the students. They, they're hard, right. Their classes are small. They're harder to get into. They're yeah. graduate only. And therefore, students who know they're there don't have access to them. I right. would like to see my, – my ideal is you teach at the undergraduate level, even introductory and, uh, and uh, an elective, and you teach at the graduate level. You do both uh, yeah. and not, not exclusively one or the other. I mean, only teaching undergrads when you want a graduate seminar with, with high-power students, I get that. Right. Only doing that. And eschewing the undergraduate enterprise and saying others can take care of that. It won't take right. care of itself. I mean, right. we need really That's bright, right. research active, uh, cutting edge people in the classroom with our college students. Right. But I mean, you know, the economics, the institutional structure has been pushing the up op- in the other yeah. direction. Mm-hmm. Look, I mean, why are there's, why, what's, what's caused the adjunctification of the faculty? It's a cost saving measure for universities. Uh, as I understand that the, the segment of the academic budget that's grown at the slowest rate is institutional costs. Uh, I'm sorry, is instructional costs. In other words, there's, you're not spending that much more in teaching than you were 20 years ago. The football stadium, the football coach, the football team, uh, the f- fancy dormitories, the debt on the money you had to borrow to pay for all of these things. It has to do with this move to a consumer model, right? Mm-hmm. We now see students as customers who have to be appeased What's going to appeal to an 18-year-old to get him to bring his tuition dollars to our campus? Listen, these are long-term structural problems. They're also problems people have been aware of for a long time, and it seems that all they do is talk about them. But you're also, this is from the administrator. Yeah, yeah. You're also providing a large infrastructure for people. You're basically providing a city where, where, you know, a a profession doesn't require that you, with the, the exception of perhaps the military, that you have to house your people and feed your people and entertain you and all the things that a university is required sure, to do these days. Sure. So it's a big investment. I'm not saying, yeah, right. it doesn't have to be ele- elegant, but it has to be present. Yeah, you need to have that, dorms. But yeah, that you, creates a culture for people to, to be in. So, no, listen, yeah, I mean, right. you need, you need dorms right. and you need cafeteria. Right. The question is what, what, what level? Exactly. Yeah. How elegant and all. No, but and I think. If, 
it's not as it's it's not as uh, immediately obvious to the eye when you have the equivalent of of a dowdy dormitory in the classroom. In other words, an adjunct professor who's you know That's running true. around. That is not as evident. But for some people in the public, they don't understand what it costs to run a university. I, I mean, I know there they they say there's runaway costs. We we go beyond inflation for our for our increases sometimes, but it's a very resource intensive uh, enterprise to run. No, it's, it's, granted, it's expensive. Granted. Most schools end up spending more per student than they actually charge in tuition, even though most people would not know that. No, I know. It's, so and it's I think people kind of, also don't kind know. of a lost leader, should we say? No, it's true. Yeah. I think people also don't know that real costs for students have actually been flat at private universities for about ten years. Right? Mm-hmm. I mean, tuitions have increased, but the actual sticker price that they're paying has, has been it's, it's been almost flat for yeah. ten years. It's continued to rise quite significantly at public universities because we're defunding them. Right, we are, and I get that. And public, some public, public university presidents will say. I work at a state-regulated but not a state-supported university, and uh, and that's changed very much since the land-grant university time, uh, unfortunately, because we have very high-quality public universities in America, many of them, and uh, and they're underfunded, and it's difficult to do it. So, therefore, it's carried on the backs of out-of-state students yeah. paying the higher tuitions. Yeah. That, yeah. That, that's Listen, to me, this is the most important issue. Mm. It's the fact that we have transferred the burden of paying for higher education from the taxpayer to the student and family. Mm. So instead of taxes, we have student debt. And if people want to see who's responsible for the trillion plus dollars in student debt, they should go and look in the mirror. <laughs> That's no, I really, this I, is. I imagine the taxpayers won't agree with you on that. No, one. of course Many not, because but, taxpayers want right. something for nothing. Right. So we're not spending on our physical infrastructure and we're not spending on our intellectual infrastructure. So what do we think we're going to get? Yeah. People need to make the connection between what happens to them as taxpayers and what happens to them as parents. Well, this is the dilemma also if you live in a state with a very fine uh, um, public university and it's competitive then and you've paid taxes and then your kid can't get into that university because it's now become elite. That's another issue. You've paid it and now your student doesn't have access to what you paid for. I hadn't thought about that. (laughs) But uh, I would argue – I would question the idea that there are any school, any states that are supporting their public universities to the extent that they should. Well, I mean, look at the University of California, which was this, right. you know. It's facing severe hardships financially. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and downsizing in some yeah. cases and raising tuition. But yeah. other, other state structures too, large, especially large structures with, that are very uh, capital intensive. It's hard, hard to keep them going. Um, that's why we're at the elite schools, isn't it? Well, and it's also why there's such a, a crazy stampede to get into the elite private schools. This is true. As long as the elite private schools can provide, you know, just as Gail and Georgetown, yes. need blind, meet full need, so that the kid who comes from a, a somewhat disadvantaged, economically disadvantaged yes. background has access to this education, which, which for me is a moral value. I think, I think it would be shame on us. Right. If Georgetown is not, not open to all students and not simply the economically elite. Well, it is, but at the same time, these schools have very low admissions rates, right? So pa- families know if I can get the kid in, then it'll be taken care of. But right. that's that's the whole oh, point. The, it's a narrow gate to get them Can in. Can you yes. get in? Yeah. And true. I don't think we'd have the same pressures if parents knew that they could send their kid to UVA or Berkeley or wherever for nothing. And not just, or for, you know, $1,000 a year. And not just UVA or Berkeley. You know, my my slogan now, I, I believe China had a slogan of 100 Harvards. They're going to build 100 Harvard equivalent. I think we need to build 100 Berkeleys. We need to have two or three of those in every state. 
So we don't have every high school kid in America competing to get into one of 12 schools. Right. And some of those, Princeton, for example, you can go for free. I mean, if you get in, right, because the, the, the financial aid policy is so generous and the endowment yes. is so rich. Yes. But if you get in, true. So you want access, greater access, but you also want standards for these schools. So they'll still be competitive. Well, sure. Well, that's why I don't want us to have to rely on those schools. I mean, let's be clear right. about this. For the low income kid who can get into Princeton or Harvard, it's amazing. Uh, it's like three or four percent of their student body right. are kids from the bottom quarter. It's, it's small. So we're not talking about a lot of kids. No. We're trying to increase ours of first-generation students. We have a program for an additional scholarship, and not only a scholarship, a mentorship program for them. So when they come, right. they are mentored by right. students who are there and by alumni in all kinds in in social etiquette, in right. in negotiating uh, an environment that is very different right. from the one in which they came. So they're comfortable. Right. They're they're bright enough to get through right. and to do well. But there are other there are cultural there are issues. other cultural issues that right. are very challenging for right. them. And we need to provide for that. Uh, and, and only if you do that can they be successful. If you don't right. do that, they flounder on other domains. Right, absolutely. And I think that's, you want them to have, uh, you know, a good experience, a positive experience. Right. And, and a rich and full experience. But you've got to provide a lot for those I students. I agree. And I think we should. I think that, I think we have a responsibility to do that. I agree. But I just want to emphasize, it's admirable that you guys are doing that, other places are doing that. We're never going to be able to educate the bright, low-income kids, uh, uh, enough of them. At the, at the, the private, elite private schools. Right. Yeah. We need to no. be, right. I mean, it's just a question of scale. Right. Right. We need to expand that, the capacity in America for these kind of students. And I think that that's going to mean public, public universities. I mean, there are hundreds of thousands of smart, poor kids who never get to college at all. Right. They need to be able to go to their state institution uh, for, you know, for a nominal cost and get a good education. Some have taken the route, and it's not a bad one, of doing the kind of community college route right. and, and two years at a, right. at a much reduced cost and then transferring right. to the flagship university yes. often. I think it's a good policy. I think it's a, it's a good idea. It's, and, yes, I agree. I agree. Scale, I agree. And a idea. few, and a few locations, I think Tulsa is one of them mm-hmm. and perhaps is it Tennessee that are trying or have already, uh, installed a policy of free, free community college. Huh. So it's, again, it's free. It's the beginning of returning to free public higher ed. It's right. going to cost a lot of money. Yeah, it is going to cost a lot of but money. But look, what do, what do we want to spend our money on as a society? Right. Yeah. What, what, what are we willing to invest in? And we've seen that American higher education has slipped a little bit in the kind of national, international rankings. We used to Although be... we're still desirable. It's just like our healthcare system. If you have a lot of money, it's the best in the world. And people right. from around the world send their kids they here. Want to come. But in, in college, our college completion rate used to be first, and now it's twelfth. Right. We need to take that seriously. And if you look at how many how many years it takes to complete college, I mean, at Yale and Georgetown, it's four years for virtually everybody. But at other schools, it's five and six years. Uh, and part of that's not access to the right classes. Part of that's they have to work while they're there, and it's just it's and it's a, it's a burden. There are funding it's, issues, right? There yeah. are funding issues. Yeah. yeah, there are both issues that there's not enough classes for everybody in certain majors. Right. Right. And that's the institution's issue. And then there are the economic issues that are challenging. Right. But the fact that there aren't enough classes is also a funding issue, right? Yes and no. I mean, depends. No? I mean, well, maybe. I mean, if you, if you allow a major to be the major. Right. Exclusively and you right. don't direct people to other majors, of right. course they'll, 
there will never be enough room right. for econ right. majors right, right. now, right. as you suggest in the book. Everybody's like the lemmings; they're going in that direction, and right. it's a it's a fine discipline and all, but it's not the exclusive discipline in college. It's not what everybody should be studying. Right. right. Exactly. Right. Uh, everybody should have. There should be a wide variety right. of things. Right. So. Uh, it's important. I mean, if we're going to talk about that, it's important to emphasize that it's not just humanities that have been suffering because everyone's being told to take the pragmatic majors, econ, engineering, computer science, basic sciences. There's been a huge drop in majors in basic sciences, yeah. physics, chemistry, geology. This is really going to cost us. And it's because students are being steered by all kinds of pressures, including right. our president saying, don't major in art history. They're being steered into econ and business and yeah. and engineering. Yeah, we have been, uh, I mean, the national foundations like NSF and so forth have defunded a lot of the research that's done for basic sciences. And it's very competitive, so it's hard to maintain a good science faculty who, who are able uh-huh. to garner grants to support the research that they're doing. That's okay. difficult. Although we have seen a significant uptick in STEM students uh, at our place, particularly in biology, uh, very, very high rise. Right. We had... We had two thousand applicants. We had twelve thousand applicants for the college for eight hundred fifty places last year. Two thousand of whom were for biology. We matriculated okay. ninety. So, yeah, I think biology is something yeah, that people bi- want. Biology is doing right. very well, and right. that might be the path to pre med, but it's also the path to a lot of interesting right. professions. Biotech, too. sure. Biotech, sure. And things that are so that has not suffered so much, but some others. Physics has has uh, has uh, um, declined somewhat, but physics was never the most popular major in any campus. It's, no, it's, it was never it's, the most popular. It's very self-selective. But but if you look at what they call the physical sciences, which is basically right. science minus biology, uh-huh. there, there's been a huge drop. Mm-hmm. And and yeah, part of it is because we're not funding basic research. But that's that's right. sort of not an answer. That's more of a problem. No, no and, and we need more people. In this, it's in this it's area. again, it's about not making the investments that are going to keep us prosperous, strong, and free. A generation down the line. When are you going to run for Congress so that you can change this? <laughs> <laughs> See, because you and I sitting at this table will not be able to change that that dynamic, I'm afraid. I, I, granted, we would like to, but really it's a political solution. It's an economic solution, but it's a political I solution. I absolutely agree with and you. And we probably don't have the clout to make that Well, no one has. No, no individual has. <laughs> Including the, the president of the United States, apparently. I <clears throat> I think uh, five years ago, three years ago, no one would have foreseen uh, the the movement towards the minimum wage, towards raising the minimum wage, getting the kind of traction it's gotten that's now, as you know, in the last election just passed in several red states. I think that free or low-cost public higher ed needs to be put on the agenda right next to raising the minimum wage uh, as, as, a, as, a, as a way of addressing the enormous problem with inequality that we finally woken up to in this country now that we know, you know, now that the debt bubble is, that's been, that was propping up our prosperity has burst. Everyone's looking around in the ruins realizing we have a huge problem with inequality and social mobility. So that means raising the minimum wage and it means making education accessible again. There's an organization called, uh, it's got a terrible name. It's called Redeeming America's Promise. It's a terrible <laughs> name because it doesn't tell you what it's about, but it was started by a former aide to, uh, Vice President Gore and some other of his political friends, and this is their agenda, right? It's free public, uh, free public higher ed. So the movement is starting. I want more and more people to know about it. I'm, listen, I'm a writer. I'm not going to be a politician or even an organizer, but organizing is what people need to do. And again, I want parents to make the connection between what happens to them as taxpayers and what happens to them as tuition payers, and to realize that they have a stake in resurrecting public higher ed. 
Uh, I think parents are the, they, if anyone is going to make changes, it's going to be parents acting as a group because they, they're fed up, as many of them are, with what's happening with their kids, with the kind of crazy pressure that their kids are suffering under. Mm-hmm. There's a documentary called Race to Nowhere that, uh, it's been circulating in communities for a long time. Gets shown at high schools, parents come, they talk about it. It was made by a woman in the Bay Area who's actually a lawyer. And her inciting moment was when her four, fourth grade son was complaining of stomach aches because he was so stressed wow. about how much homework he had. And mm-hmm. she said, you know, there's a problem here. Mm-hmm. And she started to talk to other parents, you know. So that's, that, that's what I'm talking about. I think that's where the change will come if it comes at all. The stomach ache comes in more uh, economically advantaged neighborhoods, I think. Other neighborhoods, the stomach ache will be over other things, that the stomach is empty. And not so yes. much that the pressure... No, of the listen, I mean, she's a, she's, she's a lawyer. She's an upper-middle-class parent. So schools are failing in other places. Yeah. Now, on the political side, if you, if, you, if you take your argument, what do you defund? Or what do you not fund? And when you, when you, uh, when you redirect funds to public education? I, I would raise taxes. Listen, mm. listen. Not the top one. You think that message will go over well with everybody in America? It's again, you know what? You know what? I'm just old enough to remember the Reagan revolution. Mm-hmm. Nobody in their right mind would ever have imagined that that could have happened 10 years before it happened. That we would drop top marginal tax rates from 70 to 28 or 35. I, the, the one thing I'm certain about with respect to the future is that we can't be certain about the future. And things that seem impossible today, like raising the minimum wage, mm-hmm will not will will be possible tomorrow. Listen, there are plenty of things that I think we spend too much money on, whether it's prisons or defense or corporate welfare. But we we our tax rates are historical lows. The share of national income that goes not to the top one percent, but the top ten percent, and that includes me and I'm guessing it includes you mm-hmm. and many of the people we know, is at historic highs. We're talking about a transfer of a couple of trillion dollars a year from the bottom ninety percent to the top ten percent. That's the tax target that I think we need to go after. And I don't think we'll ever have enough money for our public needs until we do. I think people in public education will thank you. <laughs> I think others will say this I know. is an impossible mandate. I know. So I know. It's, it's, it's a dilemma. It's very difficult to, to fund everything at once. So. Yeah. And, and priorities is. have it to is. be made politically. Yeah, of course, you know that. Yeah. You, you know that. Yeah. I, I agree. At the same time, the private schools will continue to exist. They'll still charge hefty tuitions. Right. They'll be robust. They'll have high demand. I don't think right. that's going away. I just don't think that's going away. That's they're going to be almost separate separate tracks. Well, it's part of the two Americas we're right. creating. Mm-hmm. I mean, people live in gated communities with private security forces. Send right. their kids to private schools and universities, and they go to Yale. Is this? Yes, many of them go to Yale. Is this the? Listen, I know this is a cliche, but is this the country we want to live in? Right. Uh, I certainly think most people don't because most people are at the short end of the stick, right? right? Most people are, are not, not in that privileged position, that's right. for sure. Uh, right. Although some of the people with whom we deal are in that privileged position. Their families are in there. Absolutely. Their kids are. And, Absolutely. And all of those kids have a right to be in these schools too. They've earned it. They've worked hard and they've done very well. So I don't want to disenfranchise them and say, oh no, we'll only take the person who was in some way disadvantaged to be in part of our ecosystem. That's not fair no. either. No. So it's a balance. And let's be honest, you can't afford to because no. the business model of a private you institution paying, requires rich you need people. paying tuition uh, students yes. and families. Yes. No question about it. Um, 
Well, I want to thank you yes, for this, this sure. robust and, and stimulating and insightful conversation. Uh, I, and I, I'm, all I can say is I'm looking forward to your next book. Okay. <laughs> okay. Thanks, thank you very much. Thank you.